This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, November 24th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. For those who'd rather read a good book than engage with family on politics, here's a reading list to help you turn away from the depressing machinations of the day. Sarah Squire, a fellow at Liberty Fund and literary editor at the Foundation for Economic Education, talked with me this week about what various political actors and the disaffected ought to be reading. We're recording this on the Monday before Thanksgiving, and I'm going to put this out over the Thanksgiving holiday so that people can refuse to engage with uh, relatives and loved ones and instead dive deep into some uh, some works that have relevance, fiction and otherwise, uh, relevance to our uh, current political situation. Uh, Hillary Clinton, shortly following uh, her defeat uh, when it for the presidency, just said she would like to sit at home and read a book. So uh, if Hillary Clinton is relaxing this holiday weekend, what should she start with? Um, I'm thinking that Hillary Clinton should read Main Street by Upton Sinclair. Um, it's a novel about a young woman who comes to a moderately sized town in the Midwest, looks around, doesn't like it, and decides to change it to make it more like what she thinks it ought to be, um, to bring culture and enlightenment to the uneducated masses of, of Main Street. So she moves there. Yes. And she decides she wants to stay there. Yeah, she has a job there, if I recall okay. correctly. Okay, so exit is not... She doesn't think of that as an option. Yeah, no, it doesn't seem to occur to her. She's just going to make it be more like what she thinks it ought to be. Um, so she sets about to change Main Street and make it over in her own image. And Main Street resists the changes. The people don't pick up the cultural cues. They don't want to make the book clubs. They don't want to do her little uh, musical societies and that sort of thing. And she she just can't make change happen. She can't remake the world the way that she wants it to be. Um, and she ends having failed in her plans, um, but still insisting that she was not wrong to change, try and change the world around her and try and make it more like her. So is she a woman of system in the Smithian sense? Um, I think, yeah, I think uh, that that Sinclair Lewis sees her as a, a woman of system, as a woman who's trying to organize the world around her. Uh, without necessarily really understanding the world around her. I, I think, on the one hand, he sort of admires that impulse, right, that desire to make the world a better and more beautiful place. I think we can all sympathize with that a little bit, but we also know how badly wrong it can go when it goes wrong. So right? taking, we ought to take the world as it is. Well, I don't know about that. Um, th- I mean, that seems a little bit, you know, that seems a little bit nihilistic. I don't think I want to go that far. But I think that uh, we have to realize we can only change other people so far as they're willing to be changed. Um, we can do the things that we, we can put the things into the world that we want to see happen. But if you're going to entrepreneur in that way, you have to just hope and persuade um, other people to, to pick up on your offer. And if they're not interested, they're not interested. Right? So, so for Donald Trump... Uh, the yeah. president-elect of the United States of America. Um, you also have Upton Sinclair for his reading list. Yes, I misspoke. Not Upton Sinclair, Sinclair Lewis. This is what happens when I podcast before I've had enough caffeine. <laughs> and I always get Upton Sinclair and Sinclair Lewis mixed up. So both of these are Sinclair Lewis. These are Sinclair Lewis, okay. and I misspoke. And I should probably hand in the, the English PhD right now while I'm at it. Um, but yes, for Donald Trump, also some Sinclair Lewis. He should read Elmer Gantry. Um, which is about a 
college football player who doesn't know what to do with his life um, and sort of casts around with wine, women, and song for a while and then decides to become a radical Baptist preacher and inspire the masses. Um, he becomes really famous and well-known and has this large church and becomes very popular and never ceases the drinking and the womanizing. So it's a book about personal hypocrisy. Um, it's a book about a man with a lot of uh, power and influ- influence in the, the public sector um, whose personal life is a disaster. Um, and, you know, I don't want to, you know, draw any conclusions here, but it seems to me that that uh, Mr. Trump might find a few things there that might be instructive. For what him. else ought he to read as he prepares to become president? Uh, let's see. He should probably read. Well, all of the politicians ought to read uh, Shakespeare's history plays. Um, I think in particular. What are, what are some of those plays? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, we could start with Richard II, uh, the two plays about Henry IV, um, Henry V. Uh, Richard III would be great, but there's a lot of murders in that, and I hope people wouldn't take it as an instructional text. Um, but these are plays that look at a long, continuous dynasty of kings, all of whom rise, of course, to the height of power, uh, all of whom fall in one way or another by the end of the story, right? So Richard II is one of the great sort of wonderful and popular kings who sort of just runs out of steam. He just seems to get tired of doing what he's doing and lets it all be controlled by other people. He, for example, might not choose to live in the White House. He uh, might choose to live in New York rather than Washington, D.C., were, were he a contemporary president, right? And the space that that leaves in the range of Richard, in the reign of Richard II leaves room for other people uh, to come in and to start running the country. He starts leasing off parts of the land. He, it's all, it's an economic disaster. He loses the loyalty of the people around him and is overthrown. So the guy who comes in and overthrows him is Henry Bolingbroke. Um, and he is young and powerful and super heroic, and everybody's really excited by him. But by the beginning of the play, the first part of Henry IV, Henry Bolingbroke is now King Henry IV. He's now the old guy who has become reclusive and unpopular and uptight and conservative and has, is being threatened by the popularity of his young son, Prince Hal, who's Kenneth Branagh, right? He's, he's hot and he's athletic and he's funny and he's charming and he's very personable and everybody wants to have a drink with him and it's all great, right? And so we have this, this rise and fall of kings. Henry V comes to power after his father dies. So Prince Hal becomes King Henry V. He does very well. He, you know, beats the French, which is always fun when you're English. We always want to beat the French. And um, then uh, fails to hold his empire together. He dies young, um, leaves an infant son on the throne uh, with bad advisors surrounding the infant son and loses all of the land that he won in France. And so you have this cycle of four history plays during which people gain power, lose power, gain power, lose power. England grows enormously in wealth and size. And at the end of that four-play cycle, we are essentially right back where we began. Um, And that long view of politics strikes me as one that might be extremely instructive right now. There are a lot of disaffected Democrats out there after the election, and there are a lot of permanently disaffected libertarians out there. 
I host another podcast for libertarianism.org uh, called Classics of Liberty, and we've been uh, pushing out there a lot of Lysander Spooner and Carl Hess for uh, people to uh, ponder during this uh, time period between now and January. Yeah, I actually have a necklace with a photograph of Lysander Spooner on it. It says anarchy underneath it. So um, good reading list. Did he authorize that? Um, I, I doubt it very much. Um, he probably wouldn't have, but you know, he would have mailed it to me very efficiently. So. Um, so what would I recommend for libertarians and disaffected uh, people from, from a variety of parties? If there was something that would uh, that libertarians and disaffected Democrats could read at the same time and both nod their head and say, yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, there's a lot of them. Um, I would definitely recommend a book called The Pushcart War. The name of the author at the moment escapes me, but you've got your laptop, so you might be able to dig that up for me. Um, the Pushcart War is actually a kid's book, and this is not meant to be um, a comment on the intelligence of anyone from any political party. I love kids' books, and I think they make the best airplane reading. By Jean Merrill. Ah, Jean Merrill. Thank you. Um, and The Pushcart War is the story of a, a commerce war between in New York City between the men and women who uh, run pushcarts through the city, selling flowers, selling uh, books, selling hot dogs, selling whatever street on the vendors. streets of New York, yeah, street vendors, um, and the guys who drive the great big Mack trucks. Um, and in Merrill's novel, the trucks are getting bigger and bigger, and the pushcarts have less and less space to operate on the streets. Um, so naturally, the trucks complain that the pushcarts are getting in their way um, and try to have them outlawed. The pushcart vendors respond by uh, starting to push pins into the, the um, tires of the trucks um, and making the trucks inoperable and disruptive to the traffic of the city. Um, it's a great book, and it's basically a primer in public choice theory. I actually think you could probably teach an entire class on public choice just using that novel. I think somebody should try that sometime. And, and let this, me know this how is it goes. a kid's book, so kids ap book. appropriate for children of all ages. Yeah, it's really, I would give it to kids in about fourth through sixth grade and also to adults. Um, so, yeah, perfect for economists. <laughs> all right, so uh, what else? Uh, what else should people be reading right now? Um, well, we were talking a little bit before about what Gary Johnson might might want to read. What should Gary right? Johnson read? He's got a little time on his hands right now. Um, and I was saying that I think that Gary Johnson might have a lot of fun with The Hunger Games, assuming he hasn't read it yet. Another kid's book or young adult read. Um, I think he would be particularly fond. Am I, I'm going to spoil the end of the trilogy right now, so if you haven't read it, Put your hands over your ears for like two minutes while we talk about this because it's a really good trilogy and you should all go read it. Um, and I'm going to talk about the end of the whole trilogy right now. So cover your ears. This audience is well read. So I, I, I worry. Worried. I don't want to spoil anybody. I'll, you'll get letters, man. Um, so I think that Gary Johnson would particularly enjoy the ending moment of the last book of The Hunger Games when Katniss Everdeen shoots not only President Snow, who has been her nemesis for the entire trilogy, but also the new president, President Coyne, who has appeared to be an ally and a friend of Katniss. And it's, straight, it's one of the great anarchist moments in literature when Katniss looks not only at the, the evil old regime, but also this promise of the new regime and can't see any difference between them and decides they both need to be taken out. 
um, it's a great moment. It's very satisfying. All right. So for people who, having watched this election season and have essentially just tuned out, mm-hmm. uh, give them some comfort in the form of a book. Well, I wrote a piece for the Foundation of Economic Education um, a couple of months ago. So before before the election happened, but at my own personal peak of aggravation and despair with how the election rhetoric was going, and I called it Gone Fishing. Um, it's about a weird little book from the 17th century called uh, The Complete Angler. It's by a guy named Isaac Walton. Um, and Walton was caught up in the uh, English Civil War in the 1650s, which was incredibly divisive and bloody. Um, families were divided, much like the American Civil War, families were divided. Um, marriages that were intended to happen uh, never came about or were delayed by years because families were on opposite sides of the conflict. Um, the king was making war against his own people. The people were making war against the king. It was an absolute disaster. And there didn't seem to be any way out of it, and there didn't seem to be any way to resolve it. And so Walton, in the middle of all of this, is writing this book called The Complete Angler, which is all about fishing, right? And it's about, he collects poems about fishing, he collects classical references to fishing, he collects uh, important fishing advice and techniques, he tells you what bait to use to collect particular kinds of fish, tells you uh, what pubs to go to, who will best prepare the fish that you catch. It's, it's, you know, wackily fishing obsessed. Um, And a grad school friend and I were talking about this book in class one day, and, and the friend was saying, how can Walton be living through these incredibly tumultuous political times filled with tragedy and filled with, you know, the great historical events that are surrounding him and blood and thunder anywhere? And he's writing a book about fishing with absolutely no political content in it. And I said, well, maybe that is the political content, right? Maybe when the world is that much of a mess, maybe when the political sphere is that crazy, the best thing to do is grab your hook and your line and go fishing, right? Get the hell out of Dodge and go do something else, right? So, you know, for people who are feeling really, really overwrought right now, I would suggest reading anything other than the books I'd previously recommended. Read Walton on Fishing. Um, read uh, Pride and Prejudice and immerse yourself in that, um, in, in the daily dramas of the, of the domestic world, right? Read, um, uh, read High Wages um, by uh, Dorothy Whipple, which is one of my favorite books ever, which is a great little uh, heroic commercial tale about a young woman who rises from being a, <clears throat> excuse me, an ill-paid shop assistant all of the way to owning her own shop um, and, uh, and you know, running her own business successfully. Uh, read Edna Ferber's Emma McChaney stories, right, which tell a similar tale about a traveling saleswoman in 1911 in America, right, making her way through the world, all of which are about the uh, successes and uh, struggles and the the joys and the the small tragedies of individual human lives, right, without worrying about the the larger systems that we're told should matter so much and that we're told should be so important to us. 
Sarah Squire is a fellow at Liberty Fund. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.